You are listening to the Techie Leadership Show with Bogdan and Andrei. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Techie Leadership Show. Today with us we have Oleg Giberstein. He is the co-founder at CoinRule. CoinRule is a beginner-friendly platform to send automated trading instructions to cryptocurrency exchanges. CoinRule is your smart assistant for trading, allowing you to take full control of your trading while being able to fight back against hedge funds and automated bots. And for those of you listening, you have until the end of the month to get into the crowdfunding campaign, because as Oleg already told us, uh, it might actually close earlier because of overfunding. Yes. How about that? Uh, they have the problem. They have a money problem. The problem is they're getting too, too much, much money. <laughs> Good problem to have. Hello, yeah. Ole again. Welcome to the show. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks, Andre. Thanks, Bogdan. Great to Do be here. Do you want to add anything else about yourself? Um, maybe just a few words just about my background. So I'm, I was born in Moldova originally, grew up in uh, Germany, then came to the UK, studied here in the UK. I'm currently based in London, did a master's in Oxford, uh, studied first international relations, went to work in banking. Uh, so I worked for a few years at Citigroup. I was in the corporate banking team. I was in the global public sector team, worked with basically with governments, governmental entities, anything credit and lending related. Um, got a bit tired of it uh, because it's just, I didn't feel like I was really hands-on involved enough in the things I wanted to be doing. And then I left in 2016 to start my first startup. Uh, that was like a career mentoring marketplace. We did that for a while. It was going quite well, but we had some issues on the team. It was mostly my fault. Maybe I can talk about it a little bit later on from like a tech leadership point of view. Okay. Um, but uh, I went then, worked for another two years uh, for an organization where I was helping to build like a tech sector in Palestine. So it was an NGO. So I traveled very regularly to to the region, was working with a lot of stakeholders there, um, but I kept doing startup on the side. Um, I was really getting into the whole crypto and blockchain space, met then my co-founders, Gabriele and Zdenek. Well, actually I had met them already during my first startup when we joined Mass Challenge, the accelerator, but kept like talking to them, kept talking to a lot of people about crypto, really uh, went down the rabbit hole and then we started CoinRule and <laughs> went full-time on it last year and it's things have been going really well since the rest is history <laughs> so i guess you made a lot of money with bitcoin um no like i definitely i made good returns uh but i didn't make a lot of money because uh first of all the people who really did extremely well are the people who came in you know six seven years ago I really got into the space in 2017 uh, at the time of like the big bubble when a lot of people came in. Um, I did well in that time. Then, you know, the markets crashed. I did very badly. And then I recovered over the last, you know, year and a half. And since like this summer, there was the DeFi, the decentralized finance boom. Um, so there was some really good opportunities as well. Uh, so that that went well too, but obviously, you know, we are not we are not in Bitcoin 2011 uh, territory. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
I don't, well, don't remind me. Yeah, I heard an amazing story, like at the beginning of Bitcoin, like the founder was giving, like if you came to one of his events, he would give you like a, a thousand Bitcoins, just here, take them. And mm -hmm. a lot of people like when it went like to almost 20,000 euros a Bitcoin, they remember, oh my God, I got a thousand Bitcoins. Where, where's my wallet? Because it was physical. Some of them even went to the scrapyard to, to search. their hard drives. <laughs> so hard their their old hard drives to maybe get the, get the money. Yeah, yeah. Lots of story. story. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. It was. It's like a gold rush. It's like a modern day gold rush. Yeah. And during your your uh, brief uh, presentation, you already mentioned like uh, a real world problem with uh, with leadership. You said you worked in uh, finance and with government, and you decided to stop because you didn't feel it was hands-on enough for you and I've heard that a lot of times and I'm I won't venture out to guess if it's exactly the same for you but for a lot of people when they say it's not hands-on enough usually what they mean is that they don't see the impact that they do through their work and it reminds me of the story of a guy who made bolts industrial grade bolts and he quit his job he says it's it's meaningless it's pointless but nobody, none of his bosses and nobody else ever told him that the bolts he made kept the train car uh, um, carriages uh, locked. So he had a very important job. He just didn't see the meaning in it. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's a great way actually of putting this. I mean, the way you have to imagine it is that something like, I mean, banking, there's a lot of great opportunities. You meet a lot of great people, but at the end of the day, like it's a gigantic institution. Um, oh, you're yes. dealing with huge amounts of money, um, but like your direct actual influence on things doesn't feel real. Um, and there are also other issues like, I mean, I saw, you know, you see kind of the career progression and you see what your bosses are doing. And you think to yourself, is this what I want to be doing in 10, 15 years time? And the answer for me was just no. Um, and I think, I've, I was lucky enough to meet great people and learn a lot of fantastic things. Um, but at the end of the day, like that wasn't the life I wanted to live. I wanted to have more, to have at least the chance to have more impact on something concrete. And that's, I, I just knew I had to leave. Like it was quite difficult because it took me a long time to really figure out like I knew nothing about startups, right? I didn't know, like I wasn't really, I was coming from a rather academic background. Um, so the transition for me, even into banking, like private sector was actually like not, not you know, not, not the obvious career path, um, but then to go on and do a startup, there was even less obvious. Um, so it took me kind of some, some digest, digestion and thinking to really get there. So what are like the major mind shifts you have to go through to be able to go like from the corporate world to the startup, startup world? I mean, there are multiple. The first one is you have to kind of be able to understand that the fear you're having, it's actually just the fear of uncertainty. Um, it's very easy. Like a lot of people are stuck doing jobs they hate, living a life they don't want to live because they are afraid of what if, you know, what if this goes wrong? What if like I will never get back into a paying job again, et cetera, et cetera. But those fears are fears in your mind. They're not necessarily real. 
Um, there's this exercise that I like a lot. It's called the fear setting exercise uh, from Tim Ferriss, actually. Okay. You, kind of, you write down your, your biggest fears and you, like you really you write down how likely is this? What would I do if this actually happened? How likely could I get back to my previous life? And actually, if you really like quantify that, you, you find out actually these fears are really quite abstract and it's not like my life will end. Um, sure. And be, I'm just being in a really miserable place right now. How much, like, what is, what it can really go wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah, yes. Especially like, like, you don't, like, you can't imagine how often I speak to people and friends who are like, wow, you're so brave. I, I would never do that. And I'm like, well, it's not actually like the, the, the brave, it's just a brain switch. It's just the moment when you understand that you can try out things. It's your life. And it's so short, like it's, it, it's, it's, it's almost, I'm more scared not to try out things and then regret the, the next year. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, a friend of mine had uh, um, a similar thing happen to him. He, he had a lot of acquaintances that used to ask him for advice. He would give them sound advice and then they would be like, what if this and what if that? And he got so tired of, uh, of, um, of these questions. Mm -hmm. He, he found, in my opinion, the best answer. He, he would go like, what if the moon suddenly falls out of orbit and a crash lands into the earth? You should really worry about stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If, if we worry about the things out there, we'll never sleep at night. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And one exercise that I found useful and I just discovered it this year is when you have like a bad feeling you don't feel like fear or anxiety whatever you want to call it um, stop and think about what are the thoughts that are going through your mind uh, and usually it's 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 a way in a way it's also miraculous because when you realize the link between your how you're feeling and your thoughts um, one you get to change your thoughts and you get to get to experience a new feeling and my advice is pick a good thought something that emboldens you and generates good feelings in you. And it, it's a simple exercise. It sounds really simple, but it really transforms your life and it gives you a, a new optic on what is happening around you. And it empowers you. It gives you like more control on what, how you're feeling and what you're thinking. One very simple way that I found to do it. And uh, I would recommend uh, doing it while you're alone. Uh, not for other reasons, but you'll see why immediately. Uh, describe, like with a loud voice to yourself, what you're, or how, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and then you can shift and, and I then describe. And now I'm thinking about something new, and I'm feeling something, and just see the mind shift and the change, and mm -hmm. just try it out. It forces you when you do this. It forces you to live in the present, because all our fears they're never present; they're only future. Mm -hmm. so it's never present based yeah. Yeah. and it's really funny because you realize that all your feelings are basically generated by your thoughts and usually that are thoughts that are running in the background <laughs> silent processes uh, and it takes a little work to basically you open up the console and see like what's using up all this memory <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's why something like fear setting helps like you have to name your fears before you can address them uh, so yeah, that goes really into that direction. Exactly. And now moving on to stories. 
can you share with us what is the biggest leadership success story that uh, you've witnessed personally? Sure. I mean, uh, I've been lucky enough to have witnessed quite a few, um, but let me say the one that uh, impresses me the most is probably something you wouldn't necessarily expect. I'm a big okay. football fan. Um, and so a lot of my analogies are from that world. Uh, the coach, the football coach of Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp, I've been following his career for like basically since 20 years, since he really became a coach. And it just never fails to impress me because it's, you know, there are a lot of great coaches out there. Many of them start already at the big clubs with big budgets. Um, but to actually take over a club and then consistently build it up over a period and consistently overperform exceptionally and do that in three completely different settings shows that you as a leader have a strategy that works. Now, Jurgen Klopp, he started off as coach of Mainz in the second German division over a seven-year period, took them to the first division, established them there, went to Borussia Dortmund. They were really struggling at the time. They were kind of lower tier, had no money for players. Within a few years, he had won the league twice with them. No other team in Germany has since won the league. It's only been Bayern Munich winning it every year since, took them to a Champions League final then he could have taken on any club after this. He took on Liverpool. Now, people look at Liverpool. They're a great team doing really well. They were like, when he took over five years ago, they were nowhere. They, they had, hadn't won the league in 25 years, um, had wasted their money, uh, had a rubbish squad, like nothing was working. He took over. And from day one, you could see the trajectory of the team change. Just really change. Like they started to play completely different the entire club, the transfer policies, the players they would buy, uh, the youth development, everything just started to transform. He said on this, literally on his first day, he said it would take him four years to win to win a trophy. Four years later, he won the Champions League. Um, and Whoa. it's just, it blows my mind to watch something so consistently successful. Now, what about it is really so, so impressive. What's impressive is he's incredibly authentic. He's incredibly caring. Like he genuinely loves his players. Like it's easy to say that, right? You know, every boss should, you know, really respect his yes. players. Like, like he, he takes it to a completely different level. Players playing for him. Like he had, when he was coaching Dortmund, two of his players um, played for the German national team who won the, the World Cup in 2014. So, wow, you would think these are like incredible players. After, he, after Jurgen Klopp left Borussia Dortmund, these two players completely failed everywhere else they went. One of them plays now in the German third division. One of them is sitting on the bench of my team, Frankfurt. Like they, they were players who for years performed not at, let's say, 100%, but at 110% of what they were capable of, simply because Jurgen Klopp made them feel that they are the best, they are the most special, like they didn't want to disappoint him. So they were ready to literally die for him. His players run with like a knife between their teeth, like literally. Um, you, you know, in professional football, everyone performs, let's say, uh, at 96, 97% of their capacity all the time, yeah. the level you have to, to hold up. Jurgen Klopp's players are able to perform at 98, 99% consistently. That one, two extra percent makes them able to beat teams that are actually better than them. Like if you just compare the team sheets, they're better, yet Jurgen Klopp's teams win. 
Um, I honestly, I don't think, I mean, for sure, there must be leadership examples elsewhere, uh, maybe even more impressive. But like in terms of like really kind of seeing something so clearly in front of you, I think this is in, in, an incredible example. I don't think there's a more impressive leader out there at the moment than, than Jurgen Klopp. And do you think that uh, his success is based by the fact that he feels that his players are special and, and shows them how they're special and because until they actually believe that they're special and they're better than they believe and they break through their barriers, do you think that's the secret sauce? I think that's a large part of it. The other part is like he trusts them so much. Like, I mean, he expects a lot from like he expects a huge amount from them but he also trusts them so much and none of them like none of them ever wants to disappoint his trust he's also he's the kind of character he knows the name of every single employee of liverpool like he'll care about how the bus driver is doing he'll care about how the guy is doing who's making the food in the canteen like he's as a personality he's so intense that like it's just so intense but so loving, so caring, that it just, like, it infects everyone around him. Um, <clears throat> there was this famous game last, uh, two years ago. <clears throat> they were playing a semi-final against uh, Barcelona, one of the best teams in world football. And they had lost, they had lost the first game, they had lost 4-0. <clears throat> so they had to come back from a 4-0 down, impossible. Uh, sorry, not 4-0, 3-0. So they had to come back from a 3-0 down against, <clears throat> like, the best team yes. in the world. Um, and before the game, he just said to his players, they were also, they were missing like two of their best players, Liverpool. And he tells them before the game, everyone thinks it's impossible, but because it's you, it is possible. And they go out and they win oh. for them. Like, and they played with two players who have since like barely played for the team, Origi and Shakiri, because they're not like top players in the team. And with those two players playing against basically maybe the best team in the world with like Lionel Messi and all, and they go out and they beat them 4-0. Uh, it's, it's, it blows my mind. Like, yeah. uh, well, it, uh, it really makes sense why he has such a big impact because again, it's, it's, uh, it's a team sport. So you have to manage the whole team, not the individual uh, players. That's why a lot of people don't understand when it comes to team sports, individual input has way less uh, performance and uh, in the outcome of the game than uh, team effort and how the, all the player base uh, works together. That's why in uh, top universities, when they um, when they recruit uh, new students. They never look for athletes that had great success in team sports. They always look for athletes that had great success in individual sports. Mm. Because in, in, in an individual sport, if you lose, it's, <laughs> it's, not because, it's not the season, not the team, not the weather. You're the driving factor. And also, even in individual sports, going back to what the trainer did, um, I always remember, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of tennis. I do watch it sometimes. Um, lately, we had a very have a very good uh, female tennis player. Um, her name is Halep. She won a lot of uh, tournaments. Uh, you could see the change in her performance, not because of physical reasons, but how her trainer manages her confidence and psychological level. So she's the same exact same person, nothing different physically 
but she will win a tournament or lose a tournament by a huge margin, depending on how she feels about herself, feel, feels about herself and the game. So, yeah, that's yeah. the importance and, of a leader. Yeah, and she struggled a lot with it. And it's something that you have to do, like, in, in, all, in all business life and in everything, even in family life. You have to help those around you to feel better about themselves, to have more strength, more courage. Uh, focus on the on the good parts. Uh, it it never hurts. Yeah, she it only helps. She would yeah. absolutely crush all her opponents up until the semifinal, and I don't want to guess why for whatever reason. Maybe it's because she just couldn't see herself winning. She would lose badly in the final, mm-hmm. which made no sense. How can you crush everybody else and 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 do so poorly in the final when you everything is built up to that point. Mm-hmm. No. No, it's really important, like the, the attitude that you get and to, to help inspire an attitude of winning inside the company uh, to help people grow. One thing that really stuck with me, like a coach, a trainer said, like uh, it doesn't take a lot of time to get like a new attitude. Usually you can even have it like instantly. And the best example he gave was like rock stars. Um, usually you start out uh, with a small band, you try to garage do band, a garage yeah. band, yes, exactly, and you try to do something successful. And say, like, the people that had success, there are a lot of one-hit wonders and or small success, but the people that stuck with it and became, like, millionaires and worldwide renowned Changed are their, the people that career. had a shift, and you could see it, like, if you saw, like, video clips before and after the shift, you could tell it by how they walked. They actually became a rock star in, in their own minds and mm-hmm. said, this is who I am now and expect and view the world differently. And you, you as a leader, if you know exactly how your people should perceive the world mm-hmm. uh, to help succeed, to help you succeed with the company, uh, you, you can do amazing things. And it's, it's not easy. It sounds really, really easy theoretically, oh, <laughs> but actually doing it, it's, a, it's something else. The mind shift is no, very, I think the most powerful. important thing there is that you have to be 100% authentic. You have to do what you say and say what you do. And it needs to be really clear to your team and you need to be there to consistently build them up. Like, it, like you need to be a leader, you need to be a source of strength for your team. They need to feel better when you when when they speak with you. Like you need to make them feel better about themselves. They need to yes. be able to feel positive and strong, just because you are their manager. And to be able to feel better from that they need to trust you completely and to trust you completely you need to be authentic like you need to be yourself and of course if 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 if, if you're a bad person you you, you should change before you are yourself but yeah that's you see what i mean what you see what i mean yeah and for yeah. Any, anybody listening one way to uh, be able to discern if either you or anybody else is themselves so while they're performing any activity, it doesn't matter if it's sport, corporate world, corporate work, government work, doesn't matter. If they're loose and relaxed, they're themselves. I go back to, to professional athletes. Uh, if, if I name tennis, you can think of um, 
Federer or Djokovic, they seem loose and relaxed. You know, they they're very focused and okay. playful. They're also playful. It's not yeah. like they're not. Oh my God, I'm going there. I have to win this. Uh, they have like the confidence. And 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 as going back to being authentic, when you're authentic, you also you don't lie. That's the base of it. Because people know if you go to a, to a, maybe you have like a developer, and he's not that good at coding. If you go to him and tell him you're a good developer, he's gonna know that you're lying. He's gonna say yes, thank you so much. Uh, maybe ask for a raise later on. <laughs> uh, but you're not not doing any favors to him or for yourself by by thinking like I told him he's a good developer. Maybe his mindset will change he'll and and he'll developer. become a good developer. Uh, a better approach would be like to accept reality. Like, look, you're not that good now, but you can be great, and I can help you. How yeah. can we work together? How can I help you become great? Because I truly believe that you can improve your coding skills. Mm -hmm. yeah. no, no, no one wants to underperform. Everyone wants to be great. It's just that people have complex lives and people have different things holding them back. Uh, it can be fear. It can be family. It can be obligations. It can be doubts. Maybe they're in the wrong profession. But no one wants to be an underperformer. Like oh, yes. no, one, no one is doing something bad because they want to to be doing it it's even very often most of the time even people who do something wrong like knowingly doing something wrong they don't feel great about it um they do it because of a variety of factors that come together and in a way your role as leader is to be the enabler for them to be great there's an even, uh, <laughs> even bigger problem with that you mentioned greatness but how do you define greatness some people say, well, it changes from field to field. <laughs> I'll go even further. It's success and greatness differs from person to person. Because, uh, and going back to, uh, to tech developers, that's why a lot of developers suffer from imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Because they cannot, nobody taught them how to quantify success and greatness. They might be outperforming, but they think like they're underperforming. And this happens a lot. And it leads to burnout and to stress and anxiety and uh, high turnover rate and quitting and all kinds of stupid problems. Simply for the fact that, just like you said, you know, that they, they're, no. they're stressed about things that they don't know if they're real or not. Yeah, it's something, imposter syndrome is something you come across in a lot of places from a lot of people. But in a way, like, it can also help, like, it drives you to improve. Like, if you are not feeling safe, you will work hard. To an extent. To an extent. To an if, it's, extent. if it's manageable. If yeah. you truly believe you're by far the stupidest person in your city, that will not help you. Or you feel yeah. like you, you're doing all this work, even studying, and you're, like, on the hamster wheel going nowhere. It looks like that because... That's also the problem like with studying uh, and something that you also have to wrap your mind. The more you learn about the domain, the more you feel like you understand less about it. The more questions Usually the have. ignorants are really sure about oh, the, yes. uh, domain. They're experts. I know exactly how this is done yeah. and how it works. An expert will start like, oh, it's also that edge case and you have that issues and maybe it's not like that. We should do more studying. Yeah, and yeah. yeah so. Even something as simple as a surgical masks, experts will tell you, will speak for three days about the importance of use, edge cases, when to use, when not to use, how to use, why you should use, 
blah, 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 blah. And you ask them, are you sure this will work? And they'll say, I cannot tell you. I studied for 40 years. I have practice in the field. I cannot give you a definitive Case studies, answer. Yes. And then you have, uh, well, it's not fair to judge people, but for the purpose of the show, and then you have a moron that says like, I know for a fact they do not work. Yeah. yeah. They, they're sure about it. Yeah, the, the Donald Trump syndrome. <laughs> well, depending on what, what part of the world you are, you can substitute sure. the variable name with a different, yeah, yeah. With different, different, Trump. different value, different <laughs> value. And speaking about, uh, about failing like that, what is the biggest leadership fail that you've had uh, the unfortunate um, situation of witnessing? The biggest leadership failure... Um, there are a few there are a few cases of course that come to mind um but i don't want to talk i don't want to use any more football analogies one is enough okay um, i don't want to talk about people i've worked with closely because you know for for various reasons like all those failures were failures where people tried it just didn't work for various reasons but one example i do want to give is myself um in my first well, start because uh, it's not like a major failure in the bigger picture of life, but it was a personal failure. Um, I think when we started the startup, um, obviously, you know, we, we had a great idea. We had a lot of like motivation, energy. We were very, I think we were really good people. Um, what we didn't do was we didn't clearly define each other's expectations. Um, different founders in the team, we were first two, then we, we became three. Um, different founders had different expectations and different, not even ideas for what the company would go, just the role they would be playing in it. Um, and I saw the problem with that. Like I saw it, I was like, well, you know, this, if, if it stays like this, this will, this will not work. Um, but I assumed that we'll just manage it somehow. I thought we'll just keep going. Things will work out because I want them to work out. And then once things work out, everyone will, get on the same page. And it just kept going with that. And it just wasn't working. And instead of changing course, I didn't uh, because I was scared because I'd already left my really good banking job to do this. So how could I, you know, how could I admit to myself that I, like this wasn't working? Um, and then one co-founder left, another came, um, it was me and then two technical co-founders, but they weren't really like using the same frameworks they weren't really agreeing on a lot of things. So in a way, like in my mind, we were building at that time one thing, another co-founder in his mind, we were building something else. And again, as a leader, instead of either saying, like I, I, either clarifying the situation or just like leaving it or changing it or doing something, I didn't act. Um, one, because I was afraid. Two, because I kept lying to myself that, it will work because we're all really smart people. Um, at least Mike, you know, we were, we're a good team. It definitely could have worked, but because everyone had a different vision and expectation in their mind, it didn't. And it was my duty to align it. And I failed at that. Um, so that was definitely like a leadership failure. Um, what I learned from that was that you need to state clearly, what are your expectations and you need to, have those expectations clarified from everyone in your team because otherwise that's not going to work if people are rowing into different directions um hoping for the best is not going to solve it um and in a way like 
you, you just end up wa wasting your time and you end up wasting everyone else's time because you're doing something that is bound to fail because there isn't alignment. Now, of course, there will be always disagreements and there will be discussions, and that's great. But those discussions need to be spoken, not unspoken. They, they need to be in the open. They need to be almost like, these are assumptions we have. I have a different assumption about this. You have a different assumption about that. Um, but that's fine because we're testing different assumptions. But what we can't do is we can't just think one thing to ourselves, think say another thing to the others because you don't want to shake the boat. Um, and then just keep hoping that everything is somehow magically solves itself. And I got definitely much better at that, uh, but it's a learning process. Like, oh, I'm, yes. I'm a, I'm, yeah, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, by nature, I'm a rather diplomatic guy. I'm not someone who, you know, just puts the face down and says, you know, we do which things. Which is good. Which is very good. Which, which is good. Yeah, which is, which is good. But like, it means that to grow as a leader, I need to define my own style and I need to be able to get the buy buy in from everyone around me um, and I need to be more outspoken about it I need to be more I need to be better in communicating that and I think I've improved in it a lot in the last two years of building CoinRu um, and mostly because I'm really lucky to have really great co-founders I mean you had Gabriele here on the show yes. I think yeah. amazing and compensates for a lot of like my weaknesses uh, because he's much more clear much more direct in his communication that's something i'm trying to improve and also zdenek our our uh, third co-founder he's also he's 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 good in like kind of going into the really deep technical details of of the things we do and kind of present that to us clearly uh, so i think in terms of alignment we are in a much better shape than where i was with my first startup and that's really been like a journey for me to improve that. Oh, yes. No, no. Yeah, and no. it goes back, I think, like most people think like only the co-founder needs to be aligned, which is important because if you have like the, the leaders pulling in different directions, it's it's really hard and you have to be basically on the same page. But the idea is it's not your page. It's a it's a jigsaw puzzle of everybody's pages yeah, and you yeah, take yeah. a little from you and a little bit from because it, it's a give and take I was, I was... but what is really important i think like when you when you hire people you have to be really clear about what you, what you want them to do how you want them to, to work like what's the goal of the scope what was the purpose for why you are hiring them because lots of people, they get hired and they have no idea what they're going to do. And why they were hired. You have like the job description, you know, it's vague exactly what you're going to do about it. Uh, and it takes like a long time until it becomes really clear what they should do each day and each month and uh, each year to drive the goals of the company. Because it's not stated and it's not, usually it's not clear in the, in the people doing the hiring what they should do. They know like we need some, we need a developer um, because we want to grow this application, but they don't know exactly. We need them to be able to, to do this because this is our vision and we, we need these features and we want them done in a certain way and actually have the discussion with the developer to see if maybe they, they might like the application, the idea of the application, but not like the way it's, it's implemented, it's done inside, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's built. And because of the architecture and the dis design decisions that have been taken, and there's a lot of conflict in, in, in that way, because people say like, 
it looks really good because you, you don't see like what's the back and how it all works, how it's tied together. And you get hired and then you see like, oh my God, the, either the code is a mess and people don't like to work with messy codes uh, or the code is really nice and pretty, but it's so high level written that they're not used to it because they used to work in the murky, crappy code. <laughs> crappy code. And that's where they thrive. They know how to work it, clean it up a little. Uh, so even, even in that, you have to know like, we're bringing, it's not just bringing a developer in, it's about bringing the right developer that- For the right job. Yeah, that wants to work with that code base and drive it to where you want to take it uh, uh, as, as a leader, as a business. To oversimplify the, the two main problems you just uh, um, told us in the failure story. Uh, the first thing you said um, that uh, you had expectations and reality wasn't kind enough to conform to your expectations yeah, exactly. and you didn't do anything about it at first. So the first uh, step that I would uh, uh, share with anybody listening is be honest with, your, with yourself. You have to be honest with yourself. Authentic. Authentic, all which means to be authentic. And then you have to be honest with other people. You have to extend honesty and uh, expect an honesty in return. Now, honesty does not mean full disclosure, okay? Uh, it's on a person-to-person -person basis, on a job-to-job -job basis. Only be disclose as much as that person needs to know to perform the duty he has to perform. You, you know, there's one challenge there, which is... Um, let's say you want to be honest, but what if you're not sure yourself? Like you think that sometimes you think that there, there's a situation, there are two possible interpretations of it. And the way as a startup person, you want to be always optimistic and always believing in the positive, but then you have the doubt in your head. Now you're thinking, is the doubt just me being unnecessarily pessimistic or is that doubt how actually it is, and I need to be honest about it and act on it. And that becomes like a judgment call and an experience call. It's really difficult to get it right because there are a lot of problems you can solve with enthusiasm. It's amazing how much, yeah. how, how important it is to have this positive, optimistic mindset. And if, if you are kind of a cautious, slightly pessimistic leaning person, it's really easy to kind of see doubts, make them really big in your mind and then just constantly create a mess because you think that everything is going badly and you're just, but then in the end, you're the one who drags it down. Whereas yeah. you actually see clearly and make the judgment. That's, I think, the, 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 the toughest skill really to acquire for a leader, to know when that doubt is genuine doubt that requires action and when it is just your fears materializing. You know what, and this is something that um, I like doing is when you talk with a person hiring them or want to do business, it's, I think it's always good uh, and it really brings them alive and I think it increases their motivation to work with you is you paint them the picture, the optimism, everything, but you also tell them about the pitfalls that you see because that means, at least in my mind, it means that you thought about it you know there are risks assigned to it. It's not like you're a child. You see only possibilities and no, there's no way to fail. That means you haven't mm -hmm. thought through everything. 
Sure. It's like going to the dentist and I'll, I'll mm. describe you two different dentists and you get to, to say which one you think it's best. The first, dent, they're both professionals. The first one sits you on the chair, tells you, uh, tells you, I'll be with you shortly. Doesn't tell you how much time it takes, comes back, open your mouth, starts working and you're all stressed, clumped up. He finishes uh, the, uh, the work he did, bills you for it, goodbye. The second dentist does exactly the same thing with one minor exception. He talks you through the process. Okay, uh, Oleg, um, I need to speak with my colleague. I'll be back in five minutes. When I come back, uh, we will go through the initial proceedings. And when he starts to open your mouth, I will look to see what the situation is. He says, now I'll put the suction pump, now I'll clean the tooth, now I'll scrape, now I'll... He just talks you through. Which one do you think is better? The communicating one. Um, okay. Professionally, what's the difference between them? They both did the same job. You got the same outcome. The second one, the one who talks, is a better salesman because he makes you feel psychologically, he makes his customer feel psychologically much better, much more secure. Like, which one will you want to come back to? The one where you know what's going on? Or the, like you as a customer, you don't necessarily know what's better, what's worse. Like, yes. but, but at least exactly. with the second well, uh, it, the, the story could be even more interesting. What if the one who doesn't communicate well does the better job, but it's the second better? Yes, the, you the, would the, still feel like the second one is better because he told exactly. you what he did. You have some ideas. You have some. You yeah. know what to expect. Uh, the whole experience it becomes a little more pleasurable. <laughs> it's it's the same with uh, with leaders going back to having these doubts. Nobody expects you as a leader to be infallible. Okay, yeah. so they will they will be grateful for the. But that's what most leaders expect them. They they have to be infallible. Nah, that's, that's <laughs> setting them up for for failure. Nobody is infallible, so they will appreciate when you're honest about the whole process. Like do a general description. Some of the members on the team who are more involved might get more details because they know more about it. Those details mean stuff to mm -hmm. them. But everybody gets at least a loose perspective on the whole process. Then if something happens, even if it's something bad, if it was something they might be expecting, like the dentist saying, you might feel a pain. You're not going to be scared about the pain, even if it's excruciating pain, just for the fact that you, it's normal. Okay, he, The professional told you, you might feel it. You might not feel it. You might feel it. And since we're philosophizing, uh, I'm really curious, like Oleg, what is your leadership philosophy? It's my leadership philosophy. I mean, I think the, the, the most important things in a way we've already covered them. Um, I do want to be authentic and I do want to be an enabler for my team. I see my role, um, it's a bit of a cliche, and I, but I'm going to use it. There's this idea, it's probably very modern uh, thing, um, but this idea of like a servant leader, a leader who sees himself as being a facilitator and enabler for his team, that's how I see myself. Um, like I, I want to have the right people in the right tasks, which is basically for me as a leader to, 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 to do that, uh, to put them in those right places. But then the rest of my role consists of getting the best out of them by helping them to thrive. 
If they have doubts, I can clarify them. If they have blockages, I can remove those blockages. If they have, if, if, if they need to learn something, I can find a way for them to learn it. Maybe I can teach it to them, but most likely someone else can teach it to them or they can read something. But it's for me to, to enable them to come to me with those questions or doubts or problems, feel confident enough to share them with me and for me to then be able to address them. And <clears throat> in terms of authenticity, I want to be in a position where, as I said before, where I do what I say and say what I do, like where there's not any of these uncomfortable silences and doubts where the person thinks, is he thinking this or is he doing that? But because they know that I am the way I am and I am straightforward and I am authentic, they have that trust in me. Like there isn't this like, what if kind of doubts and small hesitations, which multiply over time, um, but that they feel confident and comfortable with me. Um, that's 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 what, what, what I want to be my leadership style and that's what I'm working towards. And how how is it like impacting the the quality of the work that people get done? Good question. I mean, it would be better to ask my team that question. I mean, but I'm very happy. From I'm your very, point of view. Yeah, yeah. No, from my point of view, I think we've made some incredible progress over the last, especially this year, over the last six to eight months. Um, we've done some amazing work. We've shipped a lot of new features we've improved the platform um we've managed to really scale up the team managed to raise funding in an extremely difficult environment with COVID. Yes. um so i think in that regard uh we've definitely we've we've done what we set out to do uh but there's always you know more work to be done you always wonder should we maybe do this or that there's always like we are at the point where we are getting a lot of users through the door, we get a lot of traction, but still we know that there are areas we need to improve. And again, it's as a leader to then, it's, it's more a question than for the leader to decide where things need to go next rather than for the team. Um, so I think the team has done extremely well. It's now for us as leaders to make sure that we are prioritizing the right things to make sure that Coinro goes where where it needs to go, but I think we are we've we've really proven this year that we can deliver, and it's now a question of continuously doing that. Well, that sounds really great, and I like the fact that you're working to help improve um, your team and taking them to the next level. And with that in mind, what are the top three leadership tips you have for aspiring leaders? like leadership tips um first of all to be able to manage others you need to be able to manage yourself um like are you are you on time are you do you have enough discipline is your mind clear uh do you do things like meditating or journaling which can help you to think do you take time to think through stuff like a lot of people they feel so under pressure that they try to just constantly be doing things but actually as a leader you need to be able to take time out and think oh my god yes but it's actually very difficult because let's say you do 100 things in the morning 
and then you have 45 minutes to think, but your brain is like racing, you know, that's not going to work. So you need to have a structure. You have, you need to have a structure that allows you to think, but that means you need to be able to structure your day. It's really tough. Um, this is re really the difficult stuff because you wake up and sometimes it's already crazy. Like there's so many things going on. Where do you find that time? So a lot of leaders find that in the evenings or in the early mornings, or you just need to find the structure that, that works for you. And what has helped me massively personally is to, you know, to have a certain type of structure, certain morning routines, certain, you know, journaling routines, certain uh, meditative practices. Do I do it as consistently as I would like to? No. Um, but I've been improving and I've been doing it and it has been helping me a lot. And I think that's the first steps to become a leader. Like if you can manage yourself at least better than how you managed yourself one year ago, it's also a good sign that you are able to start managing others. It's good that you mentioned um, meditating and then you want to exemplify routines. Uh, a lot of people get confused when they hear that they need to meditate. They they think about uh, Hollywood movies and striking a pose, and they're like, "Oh my God, my knees hurt." Get and your I, incense there. Yeah, and I can't I hope sit not, on the floor. If you're doing that way, it's also good. <laughs> it's okay if you want to do it that way, but that's just one facet. So for a lot of people, for them, a lot of people are meditating without even knowing about mm -hmm. it. Okay, and they because they don't know about it they leave the outcome to chance rather than taking the horse by the reins and meditating in, in, a, in a positive outcome that they decide, they just leave it to chance. For some people, the walk to work, the 25 minutes walk to work, that's where they meditate. And a lot of people or said- Or driving yeah, or taking the yeah, subway, whatever you're doing, or now you're not, most of us are seeing at home. <laughs> yeah, some people noticed that when they, when they found out it's like, why do I feel better in the during the week and I feel crappier in the weekend? And somebody said, well, you're a work, workaholic. And he said, no, I do a lot of work in the weekends also. The thing missing was he didn't get his daily dose of meditation once in the morning, once in the evening. For other people, it's fishing or a hobby or whatever it is. Anything that your body can work close to almost on autopilot while your mind can uh, uh, subconsciously focus on another thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people get that in the shower or in other places. But I mean, it, it helps to be conscious of that. Like yes. I think it helps to be yes. conscious of that. Uh, for example, the way I think also of meditation, it's like it's working on my attention muscle. A lot of people get stressed, like they meditate and they constantly have thoughts and they think, oh, wow, this is, I'm not doing this right, this is not working. But the way I try to think about it is if I meditate and I get distracted and during the meditation, I remember one time, even one time that I'm distracted and come back to the meditation, then it's been a successful meditation because I've trained that attention muscle. Um, that attention muscle reminded me that I should be doing something else, which is meditating, and I come back to it. So it's like, you know, sometimes you play football and you have a terrible game, but you play one good pass. And it's the yeah. same, with, you know, with, with the meditation. Yeah, the right place at the right time. And also, if you do that and you get insights, which a lot of people uh, do, it helps to do the second part, which is journaling. It's great to, to do it again on a, a reoccurring basis. It can be daily, it can be three times a week, whatever works for you. 
uh, right down. It helps. And <laughs> second part, go back later and That's, read. Uh, I want to ask, do you go back over your journaling and read it from mm -hmm. time to time? It's a good question. Um, I do it usually at the end of the year. I do like kind of a bit of an annual review and I go over it, but not necessarily just kind of like to get a sense, you know, to get a sense yeah. of things get like a dimension. Like there are different schools of thought on this. I know some people don't look at it. It's just about getting your thoughts out of your brain and on paper, whereas other people will spend more time reviewing it. Um, yeah, I, I review things, but I wouldn't say like, like super intensively. Like I don't yeah. analyze every day, you know, like that. Well, I, I I used to be like in the side that didn't do any reviews and I, I just by chance I said, oh, let, let me look. Uh, and you don't have to analyze it just to see the progression in your thought patterns and how you've changed because it's it's blurry like, oh, did, what did I achieve this year? How much did I change? Because you're, you're with yourself 24 seven. So you don't get to see everything, but if you go back and that's like, uh, now I feel like it's like 75% of, let's say, of the value of journaling is the ability to go back and see your progression through a period of time. Because it would really embolden you and say, like, I did some stuff. And it gives you, like, the courage to do more. Yeah. And it's also a mind shift. Because some days you might have written that oh, it's the worst day of my life. Uh, but you did something and then you notice seven days later is the best day in my life and you got the results for the work you did on your worst worthy. day. And then you think about it, huh? Whether I feel worse or I feel great, it doesn't matter on the results. So if I better get to choose good better to feel good or at a, at a decent level, not just you don't want to be overhyped at a decent constant level rather than feel bad since it doesn't impact uh, uh, the overall outcome anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, tip number two and three? Tip number two and three. Um, number two, like I'm someone who believes that the way how you do anything is how you do everything. Um, there are a lot of people, they feel that certain things are, are beneath them. Like... <laughs> they don't put enough focus and love and attention into it. I'm not someone who agrees with that at all. I think like if 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 you if you do like a small task that maybe not is the most important to you, but if you decide to do that task, you better do it well. Um, and forget about feeling too important for it. Like, I, I think even if you are, I don't know, the president of the United States, but you're doing a small task, you should still be putting your absolute heart into it. And I think for a leader, that's that's a very important quality. It is, because you're putting your time, which is the most precious thing you can put in it. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I mean, arguably, like if, if maybe there's a prioritization question here, maybe you shouldn't be doing that task, but that's yes. a different question. But right? if you decided to do it, do it the best you can. And number three? Number three um, is persistence. I think that a lot of good outcomes are not achieved because people don't show enough persistence. Um, there's the, There's been in like the startup world, this kind of uh, trend to pivot. Whenever something doesn't seem to be going, you just pivot. And it can make sense. Of course, you have, you have to be flexible. 
Um, but it's it's surprising the number of things that can actually work out if people put enough persistence into it. Um, obviously, you need to have a framework, which is that's the diff most difficult part. Um, in the Lean Startup, the very famous uh, book uh, on, on, on startups, they, they call this like, uh, um, per, uh, what is it called? Like um, pivot or persevere meetings. Yes. Like every three or six months, you should uh, have like a, a pivot or persevere, should, where you basically decide on a set of predetermined metrics and variables if you are progressing sufficiently. So I think it's great to have a framework for, for these things. But generally speaking, um, startups, what few people understand is that startups don't fail because they didn't reach market or because they didn't satisfy their customers or whatever. Startups fail because the founders give up. And the founders give up because they're not reaching a market or because they're not satisfying their users, yes. or yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, like, you don't need money to keep going. You can keep going. You can, you know, people can take jobs and they can still keep going. Um, it's just that usually people give up, uh, but with enough persistence, any actually anything can can be made to work. Um, it's just that very few people have that patience these days, or have kind of the the framework in place to decide when is the time to pivot and when is the time to to persevere. Be flexible enough to uh, notice opportunities, but committed enough to see them pan out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I try um, a concept I've learned from like the world of trading uh, from a book that I liked a lot called What I Learned Losing a Million Dollars. Um, <laughs> Interesting book. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really good book, actually. Um, you should be setting stop losses for your life. I mean, a stop loss in the trading world is something that you put in place that sells your position if the price hits a certain level. Um, and it's shocking how many people don't use even this most basic protection tool. For example, it's something you can do very, very easily with coin rule, um, but few people generally tend, tend to do that. Um, oh, but then, just they don't think about it. The people prefer to think about all the good things that will happen, like prices go up, everything works out. They don't like to think about the bad things that will happen. So they discount the probability or they think, oh, if it goes down, I'll sell it myself. But the reality is when it goes down, you, you are emotionally attached to it and you don't sell it yourself. Um, so you need, again, you need to have systems in place, um, and which, which is exactly why we're building Coinu, because Coinu is a system that you can set up and that protects you regardless of your emotional attachments. Ah, but you have to set the safeguards even in your system, as you said, and most yeah. people don't do it. And exactly. even like for business, you have to establish like, like when you say like, as you say, like pivot, have like some some clearly defined lines when you say like if we hit this then we it's time to pivot because it's clearly it's not working uh, if we hit this this situation uh, we should keep going or have some milestones that where you can evaluate and take keep going or take a different path but you have to be clear and going back like what we discussed at the beginning with the founders you have to get together be on the same page have clear expectation and say like okay this is the good part but what's like the, the downside, the pitfalls, what can happen and what do we do then? Do we keep going on? And uh, what thresholds do we keep going on? And when do we do, we do something yeah. else? 
Exactly, exactly. And like when you think about it in this way, you start to set stop losses for your career and stop losses for your relationships. Like let's say, you know, a lot of people are in relationships which don't give them positive energy, but actually drag them down for various reasons. Do I have a stop loss at which I say, okay, this is it, this is not working. I, I, I need to change. Um, most people just kind of wing it day by day and that just doesn't usually work in the long term. Yeah, that's true. And since you mentioned some books, what is the book that had the most profound impact on you? So I've had a lot of books that really like influenced me in many, many, many ways. Um, there's one book I read as a teenager um, from, um, what's his name? I don't remember. Um, but the book was called uh, All the King's Men. Um, it's 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 really not like let's say entrepreneurial it's more about like personalities it's about yes. this uh u.s governor in the 1930s yeah yeah exactly there's a movie um i i think the book is is is, is much better even always it's it's, it's, this, course this, this populist governor and the book is actually the main character is his assistant who's kind of following him on his path and he has to make all these decisions and he sees kind of his life go along with it. He's almost like this neutral observer, but he doesn't realize that he's actually a protagonist, not just an observer. And things keep happening. And he's just kind of, instead of acting, he's describing them. And it's really something that, that shaped my thinking of wanting to be... How did you shape actor, it? That I want to be an active player, not just an observer. Um and the other book that really also shaped my thinking was uh, the the four hour work week from Tim Ferriss. Um, first of all, because of the mindset, I'd never read something like that before. It was like mm -hmm. my first kind of like it was my first contact with like really like like this concept of life hacking and like thinking differently about life. We're not just like stuck in this machine, but actually we can think out of the box. Um, so it, it, it gave me the, 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 the belief that it's possible to do things differently, which then led me to a lot of other things. But do you get to work only four hours a week? Absolutely. Exactly. Um, but a lot of people, that's actually, that's the funny thing. Um, people, people see the title of the book and they think it's about just working four hours per week. Yes, I, I know. That's why I asked you. Exactly. But it's actually about reducing the number of things you don't want to be doing to four hours a week. So you can then focus on everything else that's important, I'll, the rest of it. I was um, going to say that. <laughs> I probably work much more today than I worked in banking and I worked a lot in banking. Um, but I enjoy significantly more what I'm doing. Uh, so that, that, that's a, that's a trade-off I'm, I'm happy to accept. Yeah, that's awesome, Oleg. And if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Um, so they can find me on LinkedIn, Oleg Giberstein, but probably the best place to reach me is either uh, Twitter at Ogiberstein, or uh, if you have a question or something you want to discuss, you can also email me on Oleg at coinrule.io. Perfect. Awesome. I'll add the links and um, anybody listening, if you want to bounce ideas with uh, Oleg, um, you can contact them via the the links that he just mentioned. Just remember to give like a very short answer. Hi, Oleg. I heard your episode at Tech Leadership. No, I'm not a weird stranger. <laughs> uh, 
can we exchange some ideas? And I think he'll gladly accommodate you when he has the time. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Oleg. Thanks for coming on the show. Great, great, great talking to you guys. Bye. Bye-bye. That was today's episode. Tune in daily. Rate, like, subscribe and share, please. Oh, you can find further info and materials in the show notes on techyleadership.com, including links to the guest book recommendations.